disclaimer. The following content is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any such information or other material as legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Bitcoin Magazine podcast. I'm Dave. Graham is out this week on his honeymoon, and we'll be back next week with a wedding ring and a suntan. Today, we've got a quick one for you. Earlier this week, Colin Harper, a Bitcoin Magazine staff writer, and I interviewed Agatha Basilar. Colin has written an article about Basilar that will be included in our show notes. For those of you who don't know, Basilar is challenging Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi's seat for District 12, San Francisco, in Congress for the next election cycle. Basilar is a 27-year-old Brazilian-American immigrant with an engineering background. The news for us here is that Basilar is one of the first political candidates accepting campaign donations in cryptocurrency. She's seeking to raise $1 million in cryptocurrency to match the amount of stock Pelosi holds in Facebook. Without further ado, here's our interview with Agatha Basilar. It first started with my dad. My dad read the Satoshi White Paper really early on before really the, the mainstream was talking about it. And at first it was really just my dad talking about it and I didn't know whether to believe him or like follow this uh, groundbreaking new thing. But yeah, I, I read the paper, saw its potential for actually starting a social justice movement. Uh, when I first read the paper, I didn't see it as much as a, you know, an, an economic tool or what a lot of people are worried about today. Um, and then from then, um, I got involved uh, with Democracy Earth since its founding. I never worked there full time because I was uh, working at another organization called Emerson Collective, but uh, have been in the crypto space ever since. Got my first bit of cryptocurrency when I was a sophomore in college. So that was, um, how long ago was that? Eight years ago. Wow. You're like an OG. People yeah, but yes. However, I was a super poor college student that didn't have $300 in the bank. So I didn't buy enough of much or of anything, but yeah, experimented with it early on. Yeah, neither did we. Yeah. But all that to say, you know, I think there's this misconception about like, oh, you knew about it then? You must be loaded. Like I went to a high oh. school reunion and I told all my buddies, you know, I'm doing Bitcoin stuff. And that was their first reaction. I was like, no, you guys got it all wrong. But all that to say, I think it's a you said it was eight years ago. I mean, that was two years after Bitcoin uh, was basically created. And all of that to say, you know, I think you're, you're, um, the news that you're accepting Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies for your campaign has, be, has, has been like a new thing for, for people. You know, like Yang has done it and some other politicians have done it. But I think people take it as like, oh, look at this new person to Bitcoin. When in fact, that's really not quite the case. And I, I want to dive really quickly into uh, how you kind of got started with Democracy Earth. Because as I understand it, your father co-founded it with you, correct? Yes, yeah, sort of. So um, the origin story for that is Santiago Siri and P Pia Mancini had started Democracy OS in Argentina. And they had come to uh, the Bay Area to do Y Combinator. And coming out of that, they were making making rounds, pitching to various foundations and investors. So they came to where I was working at the time, Emerson Collective, and we were a really small team at the time. And I was in that meeting. Uh, and I think I was the only one who really got what they were talking, what Santi and Pia were talking about. And 
it, and I told them, you know, I don't think it's going to work with Emerson Collective. It's not really in the purview of what we fund, but I get what you're saying. And before you leave San Francisco, I really think you should talk to my dad. That was the genesis for then evolving Democracy OS into Democracy Earth. And this kind of goes back to what you were saying. You see a social justice application to Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies writ large, which is quite an interesting angle. You know, a lot of people look at Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and they see self-interest as driving a lot of the uh, driving a lot of the market and being a feature for mining and things like that. So one of the questions that I was really curious about, uh, you know, you're coming from San Francisco, you're challenging Nancy Pelosi for uh, District 12, and you've got an extremely progressive platform, a single payer healthcare is on there. Um, you're, you're on board with the new Green Deal. Immigration reform. Right. All that stuff, all those good, you know, left-leaning policies. I, I kind of wanted to pick your brain a little bit about this idea that Bitcoin and cryptocurrency is really kind of stereotyped as being an extremely libertarian phenomenon. Often, uh, you know, a fiscally conservative, fiscal conservatives love it, or that's the stereotype. Austrian and economics. Yeah, just that whole like mixed that. bag um, of things that gold bugs would like and things that Ron Paul would like or, you know, libertarians therein. Um, so my question for you is, you know, you're a fan of Bitcoin and blockchain and you're also highly progressive. You know, in what ways do you believe that Bitcoin is really ideologically agnostic and how do we get more people to see it that way instead of, oh, just these finance bros are into it? Yeah, that is such a good question. If you really read the origin of where this movement started, it was an amazing dream. Blockchains were created for the people to move power away from larger centralized corrupt institutions to give the power to people to have their own keys to their the data their money and be able to publicly audit information in today's world all corruption occurs on private ledgers if you talk about just banking the finance industry or voting how we can't verify our votes today because it's we cast we cast our ballots in this black box and they get taken away and counted by who knows either in person by who knows who or by private proprietary software that we can't verify and double check. You can talk about land registries. I mean, you, you go down the list and I think unlocking blockchains for social good has so much potential. But of course, I also recognize why the news can be so bad around it. You know, if you look at how I got into cryptocurrencies early, it was because I came from a position of enormous privilege. I happened to have a father. First of all, I happened to live in San Francisco. I had a father that was in the know. Um, I had enough resources, financial resources to buy it. And so yeah, Bitcoin, even though you know I support it and I want to help promote the crypto industry, right now it can be seen as only beneficial to people who got a lot of money, who are wealthier or who got in early. Yeah. And the later and later you come in, it's the, the you don't reap as many of the benefits, but the technology is so powerful. Okay, so from my social ba justice background, I view this similarly to the civil rights movement. Um, I think it's often hard for people to believe that we can create our own tools for liberation. So if you look at the civil rights movement, segregationists, it was so hard to believe that Black people created and led their own liberation. They pinned it as a communist plot. Like the communists have to be behind this. And they tried to pin MLK as a communist and surveilled him for most of his career. But no, this isn't a nefarious thing. Thing. It's not these special interests that are trying to, I mean, depending on what perspective you come from, like if you want to bring 
bring down the the big institutions yeah it's not in your favor to to support cryptocurrencies but ultimately i think this is bringing power to to people yeah and i was sort of curious about your stance on that as a politician what would you do if somebody came to you and this is like a pretty consistent argument you hear from people who don't know a ton about this type of technology someone came to you and said something like you know like owning bitcoin uh devalues like the us dollar how would you like approach that argument mm -hmm. Well, okay, so some people could say, you know, Bitcoin, yeah, devalues the US dollar, maybe it allows for nefarious practices, buying things on in the black market or not being able to, you know, trace things. But that is a false concern in that right now, the US dollar is the biggest tool for crime and money laundering in the, in the world. Like any asset can be used to violate the law, but that doesn't mean you should ban it. You, you should prosecute it once a crime is committed. But the great thing about crypto, unlike the US dollar, is that it actually gives law enforcement better tools to track. Right now, if a, a single penny moves, you can audit that in real time rather than you know having these quarterly reports or having private ledgers where you can't trace where money goes. Yeah, I haven't figured out how I would talk about it. You know, being an, an American politician, you tend to have have to support nas nationalistic interests, which I would like to do, but I also think on a more global scale, where are we headed towards the future? What is the reality right now about how nation state borders are becoming more and more arbitrary and we need to talk about global cooperation and governance and our communication tools already allow for that and it's inevitable the genie's already out of the bottle we will be able to transact we are already able to transact with people around the world and it's only going to become easier and easier to do that yeah and i think that's one of the most uh salient and it's a very salient point about bitcoin's power in terms of in a, on a global scale and i like dave's question because it really pinpoints this idea of like what happens when we threaten the United States, like basically monopoly over um, having a world reserve currency. Um, and I, I, I'm going to go back to the question we asked uh, about progressivism and leftism in Bitcoin, because I've always found the end game of Bitcoin, i.e. a global reserve currency that is controlled by the people. Uh, I get flack from this from some people in the Bitcoin community, but it sounds like something Marx would have been into. Like it's a borderless currency. Um, it's something that is not controlled by any single uh, state entity. I see Dave's over here laughing. I mean, I always get crap for this um, because, you know, everyone, a lot of the people who have libertarian tendencies in this industry look at me and they say, no, dude, that's not what it's about. But there's something beautifully powerful about that. Like you were saying, I mean, we're, we're, we're trending towards a more globalized society. This isn't to minimize things on the national level um, in certain cultures, but to, to realize that every industry is, is, is blending into every other industry because of the internet. And we're starting to enter this realm of basically, like you said, where uh, the, the lines between nations are starting to get more and more obscured. And Agatha, I, I kind of wanted to ask you, do you think open source software, so I'm, I'm talking like anything like the internet or, uh, you know, Linux, anything like that, cryptocurrencies, do you think they have a significant role to play in democracy? Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the things that I'm pushing for is to do open source voting. And one of the great things about running in San Francisco is that here we do build the technology that influences the whole world. And we're usually ahead of the curve. Now with crypto stuff, we're falling behind because US regulation isn't up to speed and we're actually experiencing a brain drain. But we can talk about that later. Right now, I can't imagine a world 
in the future where we are all carrying supercomputers in our pocket and we're not voting in real time or holding our leaders accountable by showing what people are feeling and wanting out of their representatives. I don't think it's working where we have a democracy where we expect people to show up every few years to vote for a few things and they're not fully bought in. It's not up to speed with how we operate every other aspect of our society, how we communicate, how we do banking. We can be voting digitally and I'm so excited about having decentralized ledgers because the argument against doing digital voting in the past was that it was hackable. You had the data stored and owned by third parties like a government or a corporation, single point of failure for hacking. Um, but now we have these trustless systems where you can audit your vote in real time. You can cast a ballot, see, verify that it was cast the way you wanted. You can even change it. And I, that makes me so hopeful. And I hope to be a member of Congress that makes decisions informed by how constituents in my district would vote on an open source digital platform. I'm really happy that you organically brought up the idea of blockchain voting because it's something that we had on our agenda to talk about during this episode. Because uh, I know that you probably know this. I mean, you've been doing uh, uh, democracy earth work for a while now. A lot of people are skeptical about whether or not this is actually going to be game changer, the blockchain for how we vote digitally or whether if we even can vote digitally. Um, a lot of uh, cryptographers, uh, I think I think his name is Matthew Green. He works at Princeton. He's, he's one of the chief skeptics. Um, so I wanted to kind of open that up because you mentioned, you know, obviously the blockchain as a whole network, very secure, um, you know, nigh, dare we say, unhackable. Um, but individual devices are not as secure. And that's one of the things that always gets brought up. And then there are other threats such as coercion and lack of anonymity. Uh, how would you respond to some of, some of that skepticism? I'd say we're early for now. I don't think that this is going to happen this year or as soon as I'm elected. I think the technology is a little far out. There's concern around how do you onboard people, how do you verify someone's identity to make sure one human has one profile online, one identity that you don't have siblings and trolls and that, you know, a person lives where they say that they live. Yeah, all of those things need to be figured out. Um, and I'd say proving human consciousness or identity on the blockchain is the biggest bottleneck in preventing us from moving that forward. I'd say another thing that we need to work on is how do you onboard people seamlessly. If you want some people to adopt this technology and move to digital voting, how do we make it as easy as possible for someone to sign up, get registered, and start using the product in a sticky way where it becomes more like a social media platform that people use regularly rather than sign in one time and then oh, they never check in again. Right. And as I understand, that's uh, something that Democracy Earth, like that's kind of its uh, mission statement, right? Like I was reading this great Wired article from, I think it was last year. Year. The one about Santiago? Yeah, for yeah. sure. Um, and uh, he's basically talking about that concept, like you're basically like tokenizing social media in a way. Um, I want to kind of return to what you said, you know, you would hope for your congressional tender um, uh, or tenure uh, when, when and if that comes to fruition, that you would be able to track the preferences of your constituents in real time. So I want to I want to I want to play the uh, speculative game here about let's say that blockchain voting works as it's intended to, and this model really comes to fruition. Uh, do you envision a kind of system where you can do live and real time polling on any given issue and have reliable data for what your constituents are thinking about given issues in real time? Yeah, I would love to experiment with that. Right now, the country only votes only about 30% of eligible voters vote in elections. 
we could have so many more people participating if we make it easier that we don't have elections during the day, during a work day, during work hours, not a national holiday, you have to wait in lines. And, you know, the, how I came to this was from political advocacy and organizing and being frustrated by how limited our avenues for expression are as citizens. This democracy was built for us and we can't hold, the only ways for us to hold our representatives accountable today are to call our member of Congress, which at least people I'd say in our generation don't have a habit of doing that, don't love calling people on the phone. We don't even know what happens on the other side with that tally or what they do with that information. Uh, you can march on the street, which yeah, is great for building solidarity and showing a mass movement, but what is the actual institutional action that occurs after that? Or we donate to a political campaign, which only 8% of Americans do, or we show up for an election every few, few years. So yes, having getting real-time input would hold representatives more accountable instead of representatives saying, oh, I can't do that because my donor base doesn't support that. That's how most of the decisions are being made now, not based on what's for the good of society, but what are the financial in interests promoting who are supporting candidates in the re-election process? Agatha, I guess you mentioned it before and Colin mentioned it too, the aspect of regulation with regards to cryptocurrency and its further development in your hometown and across the U.S. What should regulators and the government be doing to encourage innovation in this area? What it like healthier regulations actually look like? I'd say first start with an open mind and don't immediately cast off cryptocurrencies as an evil tool that should be banned. Um, I think there's over a dozen pieces of legislation in Congress right now that are trying to limit, outlaw cryptocurrencies. And if you read them, it sometimes, oftentimes comes from a place of ignorance or fear. Um, so as just as a starting point, don't ban cryptocurrencies. And then I'd also say what I can see right here on the ground in San Francisco, I am part of a YC crypto group. And I talked to some of the founders who are so frustrated that, you know, there's so much talent intelligence here, ambition to start companies, but they can't even use their own products in the United States. And so they have to launch internationally and then spend so much, so much resources trying to figure out the legality of what they can or can't do here. Even if you go to a Silicon Valley blockchain society meeting, their official recommendation is not to start a blockchain company in the United States. They say, go start it in Switzerland. So we're experiencing this brain drain. And it'd be great to have something like what Singapore does with a regulatory sandbox, um, where instead of, you know, requiring a full license um, that takes 12 to 18 months for a financial product, you could uh, launch it in a limited scope, maybe a limited audience or amount of money that can pass through it without a license, figure out the demand, and then apply for a full license. Just providing more clear boundaries on what is or is not legal because there's just so much confusion around that. It sounds like you've thought a lot about it. I mean, bringing up the Singapore uh, regulatory sandbox and things like that. Um, I definitely agree with you. I think, well, of course we agree with you because we're Bitcoiners, but the idea <laughs> of like a lot of the calls for bans from guys like Sherman definitely stem from just complete ignorance about the topic. Um, and just not really a thorough understanding of just how this technology really works and who it can benefit. Uh, but I guess on, on kind of the obverse side of the coin there, maybe, I don't know, maybe the establishment's got got a good good idea about it because they might recognize that it's a threat. Um, 
I know that you're not on Capitol Hill yet, but uh, have you kind of put any feelers out in the political landscape for what uh, congressional members and politicians are thinking about this currency? I haven't yet connected. Um, right now, we're working on our crypto policy positions that we want to publish online. And in that process, we're starting to reach out to some people. We're more connected with folks in the entrepreneurial space, um, but I haven't connected as much with actual sitting members of Congress or, or those in DC, but I'd absolutely love to. So if there's anyone listening who wants to connect with me, I'd, I'd love to hear, uh, hear from you. Hey, real quick, we're going to pause the interview to tell you about Haven. Have you downloaded it yet? It's one of the coolest shopping apps on the market. Haven is the world's first privacy-focused shopping app for iOS and Android. It uses several advanced technologies to keep your information private while remaining easy to use. You don't need to know how advanced technologies like crypto and end-to-end encryption work to keep your data private on Haven. All you need to know is that it just works. You can buy and sell goods on Haven with crypto. We're talking Litecoin, Zcash, and even Bitcoin, if you're willing to spend it. On Haven, you can even shop and chat with other users with the added comfort of end-to-end encryption, which basically means that all of your data, messaging, and personal identification, all that stuff, is stored locally on your device. Haven is like the Craigslist for cypherpunks. Own your own information and own your privacy without sacrificing quality. Check out Haven today. Head over to gethaven.app slash bitcoinmagpod to get $5 in free crypto today. Graham, what was the link again? Dave, it's gethaven.app slash bitcoinmagpod. Now, back to our interview with Agatha Bassler. Yeah, and I was going to just sort of go back to before your, your time in crypto or your sorry, your time in politics, and ask about your documentary work, which I guess that's sort of what you were doing before you got into Democracy Earth. If you could sort of tell us about your documentary work and how it's informed your political views. Uh, So in college at Stanford, I studied product design engineering with a focus on social impact. And what I studied was how do you observe people and get to know their needs and design better systems for human experience. My first job out of college was to start working at Emerson Collective, which is the social justice org that works in education, immigration, criminal justice, and the environment. And my job mostly was to do, was to travel around the country and see firsthand the inequities across this country. Um, I was working with social entrepreneurs, nonprofits, and just people affected by politics. As a documentary filmmaker, I would try to find individuals who are marginalized and tell their unique, their personal story and so that it could explain and paint a broader picture of what was going on across the country or in, or in policy. Um, so my stances are informed by spending time inside locked facilities, in prisons, in juvenile camps, in immigrant detention, uh, talking to people on both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border, following the migrant journey, talking to people who have, who are unbanked. I mean, talking to a 90-year-old who just opened her first bank account, and what does that mean, and, and why are banks not serving low-income people of color in, in Alabama? Uh, learning about our history of racial justice, how we, our extractive economy has ruined our environment, and where we need to go. So that is my my heart and soul and major reason that I'm running for office now. And and to go into that a little bit more specifically, can you sort of talk about your proposal for criminal justice reform? Um, I don't think we live in a democracy based on 
this myth of racial difference that we have or how we criminalize people. Right now, we have more people incarcerated than we had enslaved in the 1850s. And the gender disparities of who is incarcerated shows that we tend to presume dangerousness on people of color. And I don't think that's right. Um, and we're not, and we don't have a system that, that asks the root cause questions of why did someone commit a crime? Why did someone feel desperate enough to need to steal or to work in the illegal economy? Why couldn't we educate someone or get them a, a job in the legal economy? Why did we think, why was it okay for someone to think that it was okay to do harm someone else. And instead, we just send people away and to these places where it's really hard for the average person to visit. I mean, it's, it's rare to come across someone who's ever been to prison if you haven't been incarcerated yourself or have had a family member there. If you talk about the, in the immigration space, most immigrant detention centers are run by private for-profit companies that abuse that power and, you know, see, see it as a numbers game. How many immigrants can we get locked up to increase our revenue every year. And so, yeah, working towards a more just system that rehabilitates people and prevents um, people from recidivism and just, you know, once we put someone in prison and then putting them out on the street and expecting in the same environment that they came from and expecting them to turn their life around on their own with so little resources is preposterous. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that if you really kind of verging off of the Bitcoin topic here, but I just want to throw my two sats into this. Um, I think if you told a lot of people, you really kind of like shed a light on people about that we incarcerate more people than China. And mm -hmm. uh, if you also told them really kind of got in the nitty gritty of how for profit prisons work and even just said that phrase for profit prison. Mm -hmm. I think that would I don't know, I, I think that we need to reframe the debate for some people to get them to really see that. And you'll, but it's also complicated because you have to get them off of this mindset of, well, they're criminals, right? Um, and then you get into a whole argument about, uh, well, what's the crime? Uh, and, you know, you'll find a lot of libertarians, especially in the Bitcoin space, that would say all the nonviolent drug criminals, you know, um, have no place uh, being in these cages. But um, to kind of uh, hit on some more of your policy, I want to talk about the, uh, the new Green Deal really quickly. And I'll also relate it back to Bitcoin because, you know, um, it's a perfect opportunity to kind of slip this in here. Uh, we've seen a lot of what uh, what uh, Bitcoin proponents would call interest, uh, uh, energy wasting FUD over the years, fear, uncertainty, and doubt about uh, how much energy uh, Bitcoin consumes. Uh, a lot of this has been combated by people giving kind of comparisons to how it stacks up to the legacy finance world, who, whose carbon footprint is astronomical, um, and just the, the internet at large, which no one would say we need to get rid of the internet, right? I think a lot of people would agree that that would be a preposterous uh, thing to do. Uh, but, you know, then there are other uh, data points that come out and say around about 74, 75 something percent of Bitcoin is mined on the backs of renewables, um, especially, depend especially during the wet season in China when the uh, hydroelectric miners can get cheap energy there. So I wanted to kind of uh, get your perspective as uh, a you know social progressive who is definitely on board with the with with trying to reverse climate change the best we can and how you see bitcoin's carbon footprint kind of in that whole narrative the energy consumption of mining cryptocurrency is a limitation for now and why we can't just put everything on the blockchain but i but there are 
new companies, new protocol layers that are making it more energy efficient. And I hope we can make it more and more so. Yeah, I don't have any too nuanced thoughts on this. Um, I'm actually having a conversation later this week with um, someone from the who is in the solar and blockchain space uh, to get his thoughts on it. But that's an untapped frontier, solar energy. A lot of people yeah. say that it technology is really nascent. They say, you know, you're better off. Obviously, you're better off just maybe if you're in Texas, like you're better off just using natural gas because that's cheap as dirt. Um, but a lot of people also say if you want a renewable, like hydroelectric energy is really the more reliable one. But I often hear that. Con I often hear a lot of people say, you know, solar's not there yet. I have this argument with my dad all the time. Um, and I just get kind of frustrated with that because it assumes that we'll never get there and it assumes technology or the, uh, you know, that the, um, the rate at which technology evolves is something that's more static than anything else. Um, okay. Yeah. So if we are just talking generally about the Green New Deal and not necessarily about crypto, yes, we can get to a hundred percent renewables. I know there's some folks who say, oh, we should do 90, 95% in solar and wind, but then in that, those last few percentages, we'll probably have to use nuclear and we'll see how that plays out. But I feel like once you get to 75% renewable by that time, tech will have caught up. We can go the last mile and it, and it makes no sense. We have the most amazing nuclear reactor as the sun providing us free renewable energy. And if you think about just how crazy it is today, if you take a state like Hawaii, they, they live in paradise with infinite abundant solar and wind, and yet they send the, some of the most soldiers into the military to go fight a war over oil, essentially, over dead dinosaurs to then ship over back to Hawaii. And just the oil tankers that, like if you take, uh, I think a dozen oil tankers, the energy required to just transfer the oil is the same as all car um, exhaustion in the world. It's just crazy. That's and incredible. Yeah. That. <laughs> wow, that is a crazy statistic. Um, last point I wanna make on the, the, the climate thing here. So I can Dave's itching to probably move on to another topic. But. No, no, I'm, I'm good with this. Actually. Okay. I want to ask you, you said, you know, your, your, your goal, we got to get to hundred percent. Have you read drawdown? Uh, yeah, not fully, but yeah, I used, even in our old office, we collaborated with Paul Hawken and. Mm -hmm. Oh, I wow. Really? What's drawdown? So it's this really wonderful book. Um, the editor, as she said, is this guy named Paul Hawken and he's like, this, um, if, if I'm wrong here on his like official title, correct me. But as I understand it, he's basically a, a, a climate and science writer and journalist, correct? Um, yeah. Yeah. And so basically what it was is Paul edited this massive book with like, and there are like, like I think like hundreds of scientists who are working on this thing. And it's basically the, the subtitle is called The Most Comprehensive Plan Ever Proposed to Reverse Global Warming. And what it is, is it's 80... Um, it's a hundred solutions, 80 of which we know we can employ right now, 20 of which we will likely have the resources to employ in the near future. Wow. Um, from everything from renewable energies to like, you know, um, alternative building techniques to alternative agricultural techniques and all of these things that like we have data on and are not conventional wisdom. Some of them, like some of them, like for instance, uh, for traditional agriculture, there's this idea that, you know, you got to turn over the soil, pump it full of nitrates and all of these fertilizers. Um, but there are alternative, more holistic agricultural uh, systems like this thing called like a silvopasture where you've got 
you know, cows in a pasture with trees up around them. Typically cows are in treeless pastures, but these studies have actually found that if you put these cows in these pastures with all these trees in this different horticulture, their milk production goes up, uh, their uh, calves are healthier. And so it's like all of these things that aren't really being put in practice and some of them are energy. But one of the coolest takeaways I had from reading that book and this, I think, fits beautifully into what Bitcoin is trying to do for finance, the idea of decentralizing finance and putting it back into the hands of, you know, the people actually using the currency. It's this idea that the, the fact that people, consumers should be clamoring for solar technology to take off. Because once right. solar technology takes off and even micro turbines and things like that, if you install that in your house, yeah. buddy, you don't have a utility bill anymore. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's, and exactly. it's all DIY. Yeah. Exactly. It's like radical self-reliance. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, once we get to that point where you can have solar panels on your house and maybe, you know, a backup generator, um, which you might not even need at the, once we get some of these technologies and like a micro turbine, you know, oh, like it's a stormy day and the sun's not out. Well, your miniature, your miniature wind turbine is now turning to produce energy. Um, but I just thought it was really cool because they talked about decentralizing the electricity grid. And in the future, what you're going to have in the same way that I'd like to imagine every Bitcoin, every house in the world is going to have a Bitcoin node and maybe a Bitcoin miner. In the future, you're going to have microgrids, and we're not going to have to rely on a single monolithic grid that everyone's drawing power from, but it's going to be a decentralized network of smaller, um, you know, people either running uh, energy grids in their house or like smaller energy grids and people are going to be able to share electricity. You know, right. Yeah. Like I've got a downtime. I don't have enough electricity to turn my uh, hot water heater on or like can't you know, use my stove. Yeah. But you've got a surplus and you're like, yo, man, I'll shoot you some. Maybe I send you some Bitcoin or something. But, you know, it's an energy sharing economy. Exactly. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up because that is how the same ethos that comes from the crypto world can be applied to other issues. Absolutely. We, we can have decentralized energy where people are self-reliant. And I think right now, half of your utility bill expense is supposed to cover just the transport of the energy from a coal plant, from mm-hmm. wherever this energy source is. We can, we can move away past that. Right. And I'm, I'm glad that you, you put it so succinctly. You know, it's like the ethos behind Bitcoin, Ethereum, all the cryptocurrencies and decentralization it's this kind of, it is this kind of radical self-reliance, you know, be your own bank, control your own monetary a lot future. Of, a lot of personal responsibility. It is a lot of personal responsibility. It's scary. But I think that what I love that you just said there, Agatha, is like you can apply this to so many different things. And that's why I really want to break those. Oh, it's just for these, uh, you know, anarchists and these libertarians or these finance bros, you know, it's like these, these principles can be applied to so many things. And uh, I really do think they're politically and ideologically agnostic. It's just about how you apply them. And uh, the energy example, I think, is absolutely perfect. Because like I said, consumers should be like clamoring for this stuff because it only benefits you, you know? Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I think this goes back to earlier in the conversation when you talked about how do we reconcile this as a progressive issue or a libertarian one? And I think you can talk about it in how decentralized ledgers protect privacy and the individual rights. For example, if you just take what's happening in the news right now, where the government wants a backdoor to WhatsApp, they want to ban end-to-end encryption communications. That's ridiculous. And that, that is a violation of privacy and human rights. And we should, as a country, as a society, be able to communicate privately. 
and encryption and you know blockchains could could enable that but when it comes to public institutions where you have an organization that is registered with the government or that is using public resources that stuff should be made in my opinion public in a public ledger so that we can hold these institutions accountable um, so it is a public good thing too it's it is a progressive tool as well agatha why don't more politicians accept cryptocurrency one has to do with the fact that this wasn't legal until a couple of election cycles ago so we're still it's a new thing um, also the the monopoly tool that's used to accept political donations at least in the democratic party is called act blue and they only accept credit cards they don't accept cryptocurrency and they take a three and a half percent charge from every donation as a middleman so i don't know if it's in their interest to accept crypto or why they haven't added it but that is one roadblock and then i guess you could also look at who the average demographic is for someone who is running for Congress or for an elected position. If you take Congress, for example, the average age of someone in office is 58 and the leadership positions are typically 72 to 85 years old. Um, so that's not, doesn't tend to be the type of people that are looking at emergent technologies and how to use them and lead us into the future that, that we need to go to. That's really interesting what you just said about ActBlue basically having a monopoly over the, is it the same thing with Repu like what did the Republicans have like an Act Blue like counterpart, like Act Red or something where like <laughs> it's all accepted through one hub? Because that seems like incredibly outdated Fishy. to me. That's weird. <laughs> no. You know, like yeah. so I'm not I'm not sure what the Republican side uses. I mean, there are other tools to accept donations. It doesn't have to be direct blue, it's just the one that everyone uses. Yeah, yeah. There are, there's another tool actually called Numero that was founded by um, a guy, Brian Ford, who ran for Congress last cycle. And he was coined as the, the crypto congressman. And uh, he went through YC and started this uh, donation platform called Numero. So how do you feel about being dubbed a crypto politician by the media? Yeah, I, it can work in certain circles. Yeah. Um, especially if it creates another avenue for someone to support my campaign. Of course, legally, we have a crypto page up that accepts donations in Bitcoin, Litecoin, like all the coins that Coinbase accepts. Um, so that can be helpful, especially when you have a campaign like, like mine that is challenging the most powerful sitting incumbent and I'm not accepting the usual you know, corporate PAC money. Um, yes, yes. Yes. Yeah. So great for creating another avenue for donations and people to support a grassroots campaign. Well, it's but, like, go ahead. Sorry. I didn't mean to cut it in there, but it's just like, like you're perfectly juxtaposed at this point with Nancy Pelosi. I yeah. mean, it's <laughs> like you really couldn't get more of a polar opposite challenge here because, you know, like you said, it's, 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 it's she's an institution. Um, and she's got all of the corporate money in her super PACs and in her pockets. And you're out here like, no, nah, I'm not going to do that super PAC thing. And by the way, I accept Bitcoin. So let's get on this, y'all. Come on now. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, And you can't see. And right now, politics is run by dark money, run by private ledgers and super PACs and shell organizations where you can't trace the money and really see where it comes from. That's what's running our politics right now. And so 
We need people to run grassroots campaign to talk about actual technologies that can help us move to a more fair and accountable, just democratic system. Yeah, that's a good place to cap it off. Well, uh, where, where can our listeners go to hear more about your campaign, Agatha? It'd be great if you all check us out online at my website, agathaforcongress.com. If you'd like to donate crypto, it's the same URL, agathaforcongress.com slash crypto. I will also be doing a AMA on the R cryptocurrency thread on Reddit. And according to one of the mods, this is mods, this is going to be the first time a political figure ever does an AMA on that cryptocurrency thread nice. on Reddit. Checking that and box. Welcome. Yeah. Yeah. So please participate. Uh, ask me questions. Um, cast those up votes. It'll be October 13th at 9 a.m. Pacific time. And then if you happen to live in the Bay Area, I'm going to be going to SF Blockchain Week at the end of October. My Twitter is at Agatha Basilar, and my Instagram is at Aggie Basilar, A-G-G-I-E. Fantastic. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much. The Bitcoin Magazine Podcast is a BTC Media Produced podcast on the Let's Talk Bitcoin Network. You can find us over on Twitter at Bitcoin Magazine, and you can find other engaging shows over at letstalkbitcoin.com. Thanks for tuning in, guys. We will see you next time.